Before we start the show, we have a new Patreon sponsor, David Hollingsworth. You're a legend, David. A legend. The best ever. And if you too want to be a legend like David, you can find us on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you become one of our sponsors, you get access to our private Discord channel, which is basically a community chat room that's completely private. So you could talk to us, you can talk to each other. You also get access to extended summaries of every episode. So if you want to go back and look at, hey, what was this episode about without having to listen to the whole thing? We have really detailed summaries that basically covers every important point that was made in the podcast, or maybe some unimportant points as well. So again, you can find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. You're a legend, David. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So this was the main event of UFC 235, John Bones Jones versus Anthony Lionheart Smith, taking place in Las Vegas at the T-Mobile Arena. John Jones won by unanimous decision, despite being deducted an unheard of two points in the fourth round for an illegal knee that was thrown. Now, the fight itself really had no surprises. John Jones did what John Jones does keeping you at range with kicks, coming at you from different angles, softening you up in the clinch, that two-on-one hand control to eventually taking you down and beating you up even further. To Smith's credit, he hung tough, but if that's all you can do against John, you're not exactly going to win the fight either. Anthony Smith looked like he was being cautious in the first round, trying to see if there's any surprises to the John Jones enigma. And I thought, okay, maybe he'll turn it up in the second and third. But it was just more of John Jones probing, finding out more from Anthony Smith and realizing, well, Anthony Smith isn't all that different from OSP in terms of their offering. Anthony Smith would do stand switching, but the kicks from John Jones quickly nullified that. And Dominic Cruz pointed it out in the broadcast where he says it looks as if John Jones kicks you so that you stand a certain way so you only have to worry about one threat. The other thing that was a little bit disheartening was seeing how Anthony Smith just couldn't seem to pull the trigger. Against someone like John Jones where you're down that many rounds, and you have that many significant strikes and just strikes overall stacked against you, you're going to have to go a little unconventional, even if just to throw them off or create new openings. Now, John Jones was being John Jones, and those reckless moments almost cost him the entire fight. If Anthony Smith decided to pull a Remy Bonjaski or even a Josh Koscheck and decided to take the DQ, we might be having a different conversation. Anthony Smith might be champion, and for sure, John Jones is going to get that rematch. But either way, why not get paid twice for the same thing? In between the rounds, listening to Mark Montoya talking to Anthony Smith, 
it seemed to me like they had done their homework. They realized John Jones essentially has two strategies based on his stances. So he has one set of tools in one stance, and he has another set of tools in the other stance. So they had scouted him out well, or at least Mark Montoya did. But one of the things that I found interesting is that Anthony Smith doesn't watch tape. He leaves it completely up to his coaches. And really, as compared to John Jones's camp, where there's like five or six coaches and John Jones himself who watches tape and breaks down the opponent, it seemed like in Factory X, it's basically Mark Montoya having to do everything as far as strategy and fight study. And as smart as he is, it's one mind versus a bunch of minds. And if your own fighter isn't going to be involved with it, it's almost like you're trying to take control as a player and your fighter is a video game character, except your fighter, when he's out there, he has a mind of his own and he's going to execute however he's going to execute. And you saw that frustration in the corner when Anthony Smith obviously was not doing all the stuff they had discussed and planned for. One of the questions I always had about John Jones is, what's he going to do when he fights somebody who could actually throw head kicks? And it seemed like the Anthony Smith camp saw head kicks as an opportunity, except Anthony Smith basically only threw it once. And I think a lot of the lack of offense from Smith was due to Smith never being able to figure out his timing or his distancing. Smith is a very violent and offensive fighter. But he swarms if he has at least some amount of momentum, if not that he straight up hurt you. Neither of those things happened in this fight where he felt like, oh, I got two punches strung together or I hit him hard enough. This is an opportunity. And throughout the history of John Jones, he's really developed his left leg where it's almost like a jab. He uses it to probe. He uses it to flick out kicks. He does so many variety of attacks just from the left leg alone. So rather than actually using a jab, which John Jones doesn't really do, he kind of hand fights with his hands and then uses the left leg to do a lot of the damage, kind of like a flicker jab with the foot. Anthony Smith really reminded me of Tyron Woodley in this fight, which we'll discuss later, which is of the mindset of, okay, I lost this round. Let's reset the next round and start all over instead of trying to win the round that you're in. And that's not a championship mindset. Even not watching tape, that told me a lot about Anthony Smith. It's not that you need to watch tape to win a fight. It's more like, why wouldn't you want to watch tape? And a lot of it has to do with psychology. You're afraid that if you watch a lot of tape, it's going to get into your head. It's going to psych you out. And somebody who gets psyched out that easily, it's hard to fight at the highest level. I've heard a lot of fighters say they don't watch tape. And... I can't think of very many that ends up being champion or keeping the title. Like Jeremy Stevens is another guy. They just become perennial contenders or journeymen. And I think a lot of that has to do with that self-confidence. John Jones has the confidence to watch hours and hours of his opponents and it doesn't psych him out. He knows he could beat them. Also going into this fight, I predicted that perhaps the only way Anthony Smith could win is if John Jones disqualifies himself. Because why? He's a cheater. He broke the rules versus Matt Hamill. And he's consistently broken rules outside of the ring as well. So I thought, you know, that Matt Hamill down elbow, breaking the rule that everybody knows about? Something like that's going to happen again. And so 
when he got deducted that two points, I think it was also because not only because of the knee, which was illegal, but he also threw a head kick to a down opponent, which was also illegal. And I think that's why Herb Dean took two points away. So I was really close to being right on my prediction, except Anthony Smith did the honorable thing and said, no, 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 I'll continue fighting. But I don't blame him because he got hit, but he wasn't rocked. So it would have to be so much acting on his part to pretend that he got knocked out and that he would be hated for it forever. And UFC might cut him after his next fight. So it was better for the long term. And another thing about John Jones is when he's so dominant and he has his opponent that outmatched, his biggest threat is himself. And that's why I think breaking the rules, getting himself disqualified is always a risk for John Jones. He's kind of, he kind of reminds me of Coach Belichick and the Patriots where they don't have to cheat to win, but they just do it anyway. Now, a couple of questions I had was, would Anthony Smith have an answer for John Jones's hands out eye gouge kind of stance and his knee stomps? which are his two longest range weapons. And no one's found an answer and no one's beaten him. So whoever ends up beating him has to figure that out. However, there are some clues. So if you go back and watch Lyoto Machida, he had success with that eye gouge stance of John Jones by parrying that outstretched hand and blitzing. And then as far as the knee stomps, Alexander Gustafsson handled the knee stomps well in their first fight by pulling his lead leg back and letting Jones step in and then blitzing on him. But even if you do all those things right, you still probably won't beat him unless you have, on top of that, really good kickboxing and really good wrestling. And with the current lineup in the light heavyweight division, other than Daniel Cormier, who's up in heavyweight and he's almost 100 years old, who else in the UFC light heavyweight division is a high-level wrestler who can not only box, but also kick. Now, that's not that uncommon in the lighter divisions, like 185 and below, but at light heavyweight and above, they're not the same kind of mixed martial artists as the lower weights. Like, if you were just straight up mostly a kickboxer at lightweight, you'd have a hard time. But you could get away with that at heavyweight and light heavyweight. And so this combination of mostly one-dimensional opponents and the skill set, and the variety of John Jones, that combination might make John Jones the greatest MMA fighter ever. When you say greatest MMA fighter ever, are you talking pure skill-wise or considering everything, like legacy, opponents, history? I just mean on paper. I just mean by the record. Because skill set-wise, there's a lot of guys in the lower weight divisions who are a lot more skilled than John Jones. It's just that as they get bigger... They don't have as much variety. John Jones is gifted in that he can employ a lightweight MMA style at light heavyweight. But given all the controversy around him, not just in the DQs, but with all the steroid failures, can he ever be considered the greatest? I mean, it'll be greatest with an asterisk. For like students of the game, they probably would put Mighty Mouse as the greatest ever. John Jones is definitely up there, but unlike what Joe Rogan says, I believe Demetrius Johnson actually had better opponents than John Jones because Demetrius Johnson's opponents could do it all. They could wrestle, they could kick, 
They could punch. They can mix it all together. They're fast. Whereas John Jones's opponents are classic light heavyweight or heavyweight style fighters who rely heavily on one skill set. But when people think about greatest, like when regular people think about greatest, they don't factor all that in. I think they just look at the number of victories they had as champion. And right now, John Jones doesn't have the streak. But looking at the light heavyweight lineup, he definitely could go undefeated as champion for a very long time. So let's go to the next matchup, which was Tyron Woodley versus Kamaru Usman for the welterweight championship. Now, Tyron Woodley really came into his own after he became champion, where a lot of people, they didn't buy into the Woodley hype. But after, especially after Darren Till, I think a lot of people were thinking Tyron Woodley might be one of the greatest welterweights ever. Now, he got dominated by Kamaru Usman for five rounds and lost the decision. But even with that said, I would still say Tyron Woodley will go down as one of the best welterweights ever until, you know, maybe years from now, more welterweights come up and they're better than he is, then they crowd him out. Because right now, you know, the history of the sport is still very young. So a lot of people can make it to the top five greatest because we haven't had that many. But in this fight, as soon as it started and as soon as the two fighters approached each other, I was very surprised at how big Kamaru Usman is for welterweight. He is a gigantic welterweight. And not gigantic as in lanky or just tall, but very wide and muscular. And usually when they're that big, they gas out. But Usman, in all of his fights, he never gasses out. And he clearly had the better gas tank than Tyron Woodley. And I always felt like Usman was going to be a bad style matchup for Woodley. Because Usman is somebody who has pressure, plus power, plus wrestling. And he's fighting a guy who likes to back up. And listening to the corners, Dean Thomas, which is Tyron Woodley's head MMA coach, he knew that. So their game plan, which was revealed in between the rounds, was that Woodley was not supposed to back up in this fight. He was supposed to come forward. He was supposed to throw leg kicks. He was supposed to throw jabs. He was supposed to throw combos, which are all things Tyron Woodley is not comfortable doing. And Tyron Woodley might be a better wrestler than Usman if they were on a wrestling mat, but you can't wrestle well with your back against the fence. Your ability to get into a low stance is blocked by the fence. It forces you to stand upright. And Usman used that to his advantage because up against the fence, Woodley couldn't really drop down to take him down. And Woodley couldn't properly sprawl. And there was even a point where Usman took him down and mounted him. And he really effectively used grapevines to control him. And especially when you're longer than your opponent, grapevines from mount is really effective. The other thing is Woodley couldn't keep up with the pace of Usman. You look at all of Woodley's championship fights and it's been against slow paced fighters. The overall pace of the fights have been slow. And they've also been single style fighters. Lawler is only going to strike. Thompson is only going to strike. Damian Maya is only going to do submissions and jujitsu. Darren Till is only going to strike. But Usman does it all. He even says so in his post-fight speech. He might not do everything really great, but he blends everything well together. And he does. Usman is also the best wrestler Woodley has faced. But not only is he the best wrestler, he's a wrestler with KO power. He can also clinch. And he can also submit. 
And historically, Woodley has had problems with guys who can generally do everything, like Nate Marquardt, Rory McDonald, Jake Shields. That's always been his kryptonite, a guy who can kind of do it all. Woodley is at his best if he fights somebody who just does one thing really well and is willing to fight at Woodley's pace. Tyron Woodley has similar problems to another Rufus-trained fighter, Anthony Pettis, which is to constantly back up, go back in a straight line, go forward in a straight line, and mostly throw single strikes. So this fight looked a lot like a lot of the Anthony Pettis fights where he gets pressured against the cage and gets beaten up. Another reason why this was a bad style matchup is because Usman is a pressure fighter and he likes to push his opponents up against the cage, Usman was able to burn Tyron Woodley's arms out by wrestling with them against the fence and also sapping his gas with body shots. Woodley is really known for that power right hand, but when his arms are burned out from wrestling and his gas sapped, it kills that power shot. That right hand of Woodley was no longer a threat after the first round. The thing is, though, Usman has done this to everybody, but Colby Covington has the same style. So that's going to make an interesting match. Who can implement that same style on the other opponent? I think it's interesting you mentioned that Tyron might go down as one of the greatest welterweights, but in breaking down his style, it almost seemed like you made a case against it, where he tends to do well against single-style guys and against well-rounded fighters, he doesn't seem to prevail. And the knock on Tyron has always been the flaws are there, but can opponents take advantage of it? He's been backing up and going against the fence for a long time ever since the Rory McDonald and the Jake Shields fight. Jake Shields is by no means a K-1 striker, but he was able to get Tyron moving towards the fence and just boxed him up. And it looked ugly, but he won. And Tyron wasn't willing to take him down because of the submission threat. And with Rory, Rory jabbed him to death. Tyron had no answer. And what really interested me about this fight was Kamaru never let up. The Nebraska nightmare just seemed to have an answer for everything that Tyron did. The fact that Kamaru shot in and Tyron went for a guillotine attempt, which I thought was interesting. I thought for sure he would try to scramble, make it a wrestling affair. But he just latched on for a poor guillotine attempt. And I thought, all right, correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't seem like it's going to be successful. And the longer the fight went on, he didn't seem to have an answer to try to get back up. It could be that Kamaru was just that much stronger. And Tyron was saving his strength to explode later. But like you mentioned, Sam, the longer he waited, the more and more Usman drained him of that power. And when they did restart, Usman wasn't worried about the power that Woodley had because he knew that I'm sapping it. One body shot at a time, one shoulder bump at a time, one takedown at a time. Overall, I think if you matched up the number of strikes that Usman threw versus Woodley, it's astronomical. It's like they weren't even in the same sport. Yeah, Usman already is somebody who can match Cain Velasquez's record-setting volume that he set against Junior Dos Santos. I think this fight with Tyron Woodley, I think, might be very similar to that, if not already beating that. And also, Usman, even before this fight, 
is somebody who's had multiple 10-8 rounds just dominating people. And as far as the guillotine attempts were concerned by Woodley, he did a guillotine against Stephen Thompson before as well. And after that fight, he said that was a mistake. He probably shouldn't have done that. So in this fight, I don't think it's that he believes in his guillotine so much. I think it was more out of desperation. Even in the first round, I think because he couldn't get underhooks on him and he couldn't yank him up and he was so flat up against the fence that he couldn't out-pummel and out-wrestle him, he was using the guillotine to kind of yank him up to prevent the takedown and also kind of as a resting position. Because a lot of times you could just kind of hold that there for a while. What Usman did really well was use that support on the back of his neck to lift Tyron Woodley off of his feet. It's basically you're resting your weight on the back of my head via guillotine. Well, if you're resting it on my head, if I lift my head up while grabbing your legs, I can lift and dump you. And you saw that a couple times in the fight. And actually something similar to that happened to Tyron Woodley's training mate, Ben Askren as well. As scary as Tyron's power is, there's something to be said about constant activity, almost like a Diaz brother style, where no one strike is going to be the one that hurts you, but the multiplier effect is essentially what does you in. Oh yeah, one more thing is Usman had a really good answer for that power right hand, which is the front kick. Every time there were an open space and an opportunity was there for Tyron to dash in and blitz. Usman would just throw a front kick. And that really messed up Tyron's whole timing, distancing. And he didn't want to walk in straight up into a front kick to the chin and get knocked out like Vitor Belfort or Randy Couture against Leona Machida or Alistair Overeem or any of the other times where people just didn't see that front kick coming. And that's the good and the bad about Tyron Woodley. He's very calculated and he's willing to fight a slow paced fight and he's willing to wait. So he's very cautious. That served him well against single style fighters where he found an opportunity. But if you're single style, you could only nullify opportunities in one area. Whereas Usman, because he has a variety of mixed martial arts styles, he basically nullified all the things that Tyron Woodley is strong at. Now, I did say Tyron Woodley could go down as one of the greatest ever welterweights. And when I say greatest ever, like I was saying with John Jones, It's not actually meaning they're the greatest skilled. I think greatest also means they were the best at a certain time where maybe the style matchups weren't there. And Tyron Woodley was champion during this era where somebody like Kamaru Usman was just getting into MMA, where somebody like Kobe Covington was just working his way up the ranks. So he didn't have these versatile fighters. And on top of that, Rory McDonald left the UFC. So, so much about being the greatest is also about being there at the right time. UFC 235 also marked the debut of Ben Askren. And he drew a tough first fight in Robbie Lawler. If you were going to create somebody that can give Ben Askren a hard time in the UFC welterweight division, you couldn't do much worse than Robbie Lawler. Good takedown defense, knockout power, former champ, tons of experience, doesn't get rattled in there. And in the initial goings, when they zoomed in on the fighters, you saw a total contrast in how they approached it. Lawler looked like he was going to kill somebody. He was breathing heavy. He was looking straight at the camera. And Ben Askren just looked like he was about to go shopping. And when the fight started, you knew right away what their game plans were. Ben Askren shot in, 
Robbie defended, and then he picked him up in this Kurt Angle like move and slammed him on his head. And I thought, is that it? Is this gonna be the unceremonious end of Ben Askren? Because right after Robbie Lawler jumped on him, started hammering him with strikes, and at certain points it almost looked like Ben Askren went limp. To Erbdean's credit, he let him fight it out. Ben recovered, and he went on to go ahead and start more wrestling exchanges. Robbie did well, but Ben Askren being Ben Askren, on one of the grappling exchanges, he caught Robbie in this weird bulldog position. Robbie claimed that he was fine. He figured, well, there's no point in keeping my hand up here. He dropped it. And from that angle, even the announcers couldn't really see what was going on. Herb Dean said, hey, I thought you were out. Robbie popped right back up. He said, fuck, man, I'm good. But being the consummate professional, he just said, eh, it's a fight game. It is what it is. It happens. And Ben got to walk away with a submission victory, albeit without a little bit of controversy. And Robbie gets to live to fight another day. He didn't take a whole lot of damage in this fight. His jaw might be a little sore, but it'll be interesting to see who Ben Askren draws in his next fight out. What really surprised me was Ben Askren's perseverance, his ability to take some shots, but he still looked overall kind of terrible in the early goings of the fight. I thought at least he might try to fake against Robbie, try to throw some feints, try to pause some strikes, but he just went right at it. And Robbie went Hulk mode. For Robbie, there were no surprises. You knew what he was going to do. And when you picked Ben up and slammed him, it worried me for future opponents because... Robbie is great at stuffing takedowns, and he's got good grappling credentials of his own. So as far as the other strikers in the welterweight division, I see Ben going through them like the Darren Tills and the Steven Thompsons. But against the Masvidal, that's intriguing. I want to know how he deals with somebody who's crafty, who can keep the fight standing, who can box him up at range. Because if you're just a singular striker, where you're going to spam him with kicks or with straight punches, Ben's probably going to find a way to take you down and win. But against a crafty veteran, that's when it gets interesting. So Robbie will probably continue to draw exciting fights, maybe work his way back up. But because him and Kamaru are trading partners, I don't know if he's going to fight for a belt anytime soon. For Ben Askren, he said he wants the winner of Darren Till versus Masvidal. And if Till wins, I see Ben having a much easier time. If Masvidal wins, I could see it being a much tougher go-around for Ben, given that Masvidal does have a wrestling background. I'm not saying he can keep it standing the whole time, but how does Ben deal with that kind of tricky boxing stand-up strikes of Masvidal? But it's always been said that Askren's wrestling just mystifies you. And you're not used to certain ways. Almost like John Jones is striking. Askren's wrestling is like, what the hell? How, how's he doing this? Or I'm not used to this position. Like, how, do I, how am I supposed to defend? Oh, I'm not used to getting out from here. So Colby and Kamaru have wrestlings at a very high level. 
but you could see it in YouTube instructionals. You see it in breakdowns of other college wrestlers. But with Ben Askren, it's a little tough. How would you defend against a Ben Askren-style chain wrestling combination? And maybe that's why Kamaru and Kobe don't want any piece of Ben Askren because they think, well, eventually when we get into these grappling exchanges, I'm not as confident. Robbie has been competing long enough. And as a veteran, you pick up these little tips and tricks. One of the things a lot of veterans used to do is almost in that pro wrestling sense of, I'm going to go just limp just for a second. Maybe you'll ease up. Maybe you'll try something. And then it just kind of backfired. He might have thought, I'll just let you burn out. I'll just relax a little bit. Oh, fuck. Fight's over? Shit. Well, it is what it is. I like the fact that he was the consummate professional. Even when he loses badly, he'll get up, dust himself off, say congrats, and he moves on. He's also one of the few guys that post Nick Diaz, Diaz doesn't say anything bad about. He just says, yeah, we fought. I won. He never followed up. He never talked shit. So I don't see that changing for Robbie. But for Ben, I am going to be interested in who they match him up with next. So the next fight we're going to be studying is Cody Garbrandt versus Pedro Munoz. Now, here's the thing. Garbrandt is good. You forget because of his two fights with TJ Dillashaw. But Garbrandt is good. And in this fight, you saw how good he was for a while. His speed, his baits, his feints, his setups, his footwork, his head movement. I mean, like there's a brilliant thing he was doing where he does a nice switch stance as you're trying to counter him. So you walk into his power shot. Munoz, on the other hand, isn't as flashy or even as complicated in his variety of strikes. He was just chopping Cody Garbrandt down with calf kicks. But it looked still like up until a point, Cody Garbrandt was winning. And then there was a clash of heads. And Garbrandt was hurt from that headbutt. And Munoz started swarming on him while Garbrandt was complaining. And either Garbrandt just fell over because he was already dizzy or Munoz dropped him. I'm not sure. But on the ground, Garbrandt was able to recover even though he was getting punched a lot. But something happened. Like, it triggered Garbrandt. He was really mad after that point. Now, I look back at his fight with Dominic Cruz, and in a lot of ways, I think that fight was an anomaly. Like, that was the best Cody Garbrandt was ever going to look. Now, I just said Cody Garbrandt is really good, right? So what I'm saying is, that wasn't an anomaly in ability. That ability he has, and he still has. He could beat TJ. He could beat everybody in the division. But why that was an anomaly was in composure. Garbrandt has never looked that composed in a fight previously and since. So in fights, Garbrandt will get mad and you can draw him into a firefight. And that's what TJ did twice. And when you get him into a firefight, he'll plant his feet and start throwing hooks. And if you can slip and get a better angle on him and throw tighter punches, you'll get there first. But this has become a pattern for Garbrandt. Now, I've heard a lot of MMA fighters break down fighters as far as their mental attitude or their personality into three groups. Athletes, competitors, and fighters. And sometimes people add a couple more groups. But one group that's always there is fighter. You would think fighter is the best one to be in, right? Like, it sounds the most badass. 
But fighter also is code for losing your cool during a fight. And Cody is definitely in the fighter category. And so because he is a fighter, if he gets mad, he'll just street fight. And you could take advantage of that. A lot of the similarities I see with Cody is with another fighter in Bellator, which is Aaron Pico. They have great boxing, good head movement, fleet-footed, and great wrestling, but they don't use it. And especially with Aaron Pico, you see a guy who can string it all together, but he chooses to stand and strike. He almost has a kindred spirit in Cody, where even by threatening a takedown or a single leg, or even initiating a clinch once or twice, would do wonders for Cody's game. I don't know if it's because of the Team Alpha Male blueprint where they say, well, just keep doing what you're doing. And him not evolving if he needs to switch camps to go somewhere to get a different look. But I agree, Cody has all the tools. But it seems whether he loses his composure, he can't stick to the game plan. What is his game plan? Because he didn't seem to have an answer for Pedro Munoz's calf kicks. And... Against TJ and his kicks, he would either take it or blitz up the center whenever TJ is on one foot. With Pedro, you could tell he did a lot of stance switching, moving, movements, fainting. And I want to know if Cody could just add a little bit more dimensions. He already has good wrestling. Why not threaten? Or if he takes the AKA mold of throwing quick strikes into a clinch and hurting them against the fence just to buy some time, give them another threat to think about, breaking off, and then doing it all over again. If nothing else, it's going to make the guy a little more hesitant because he's not sure whether the strike is going to be followed up with a clinch or a takedown or if you were to throw a little bit more kicks in, it's going to make him that much more of a threat. But he seems content to thinking, well, this is the partner that got me to the dance. I'm just going to stay with it. And Pedro Munoz enters a very crowded bantamweight field of contenders, whereas there's him, there's Marlon, and Henry Cejudo looms in the background because if he decides to come up and the UFC gets rid of their flyweights, then he's another person to add into the mix. And TJ, even though he looked like shit at featherweight, is still a very good bantamweight champion. 